If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Harriet Tubman. She'll be answering our call from her home in Auburn, New York, in 1903 at the age of 81. Harriet Tubman was a force of nature. There's a reason that she was able to successfully lead slaves to freedom for 10 years without getting caught and without losing a single person. Harriet carried a revolver in case she had to fight slave catchers, but also as a warning to those running to freedom with her. Because once they had begun the journey, one person turning back could jeopardize the whole group. Even though many of these escapes were at night and in the winter, it didn't matter because those running to freedom with her had one choice, liberty or death. She pointed that revolver at more than one slave trying to turn back. And that's the beauty of Harriet Tubman. She was a fighter for us all. She was penniless her whole life because any money that came in immediately went towards the next expedition north or to feeding or helping others. That's why everyone loved her. Well, that and because she tells stories that captivate you. Her laugh makes you laugh, and she cared deeply about people. She spent her remarkable life and never-ending persistence making the world better for us all. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and singers everywhere, I give you Harriet Tubman. Hello, Mrs. Tubman, is that you? Yes, it is. Ma'am, it is such a pleasure to speak with you. My name is Tony Dean. I'm calling you from the future, the 21st century. The device that you're holding in your hand, it's called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were in the same room with one another. And it also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world, many of whom may not have heard of your extraordinary life, which I believe exemplifies courage and living with purpose. I was hoping that I could ask you some questions today, but before I do, I understand that this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you may have first? Have you ever heard of the grapevine? What is that? The grapevine was how you communicated. Sometimes it was a way that people communicated from, well, across the waters, let's say, into Canada. And sometimes somebody may have known a seafaring man or something, and then somehow or another the communication would reach all the way to Canada via the grapevine, the Underground Railroad, both. So you probably would have loved it if you had had these smartphones with you where you could easily communicate it, because if you're communicating through the grapevine, you're passing these messages from one person to the next. Did, they, did the messages ever get mixed up when you did that? Well, I'm sure they did, but we just kept on trying to get it right because many times it meant life or death. You know, you had mentioned the Underground Railroad. I was going to ask you about that a little bit later, but since you've mentioned it right off the bat, in our time, the Underground Railroad is studied and people really understand it. But in your time, I mean, you were just kind of making that up as you would go. You played a huge role in that. What was your role in the Underground Railroad? Well... I tell you first, you do know what the Underground Railroad was, right? Please I, explain it. 
I was a little girl. I didn't know what it was. And Well, I thought it was an actual railroad in a tunnel under the ground. <laughs> That's what I thought it was. And I found out it wasn't that at all. I found out it was a, a network of people usually living in different places like Say like me, Albany, New York, it may have been a tunnel leading from someone's home right to the riverbank of the Great Hudson River. It may have even been a pulpit on the church floor that you could kind of turn, and underneath it there was a staircase. And I believe it was Birch Farm up there near a place called Lockport or way up there near Canada, it was in a barn, and people, they would go down, way down this ladder, and they would wait down there until it was safe. It was an actual tunnel many times, and they'd come on up, and they'd go to the next stop on Grand Railroad. But as a little girl, I guess that makes sense. Why wouldn't you think that it was, for some reason, trains running underground, which is hard to even imagine, but <laughs> yes, in your time. Yes, yes. But that's what you would have thought, and then, but you, so you're saying that the Underground Railroad is just people's basements and ladders up to a hidden spot in a barn, and it's just a bunch of connections like that. Yes, it is, but it's more than that. It's people. It's a connection of people's hearts for the same thing. Wow, the Underground Railroad is exactly that. It's not just places and trails. It's a connection of people that that love other people. Yes. Gosh, I never thought about that. Well, you, your heart was in the middle of that connection. You, I mean, you played a big role in that, weren't you? Were you a conductor on the railroad? or I mean, what was your role? Well, I tell you, you mentioned conductor. I can say what most conductors can never say. See, I, I ain't never lost a passenger, and I ain't never run my train off the track. No, <laughs> sir. Many conductors, they can't see that. It was the, the Lord that got us through all of them times. And that same Lord is still bringing us through today. So could you, and I definitely, I know that you have a strong belief in the Lord. I wanted to ask you about that. But I want to go back to the uh, you being a, on the, a conductor on the railroad. What were your responsibilities? I mean, what you say you never lost a passenger. I'm assuming that means that you never, you never got caught. But what exactly did you do on the Underground Railroad? What did I do? I just listened to God. If you told me to go right, I'd go right. Do you know how many people you helped? Uh, how many slaves you helped well, to safety? Well, I really never did keep track of the people. And I didn't write in, you know, anybody's name down or anything. But uh, I'll tell you. You know, after the John Brown raid, it wasn't safe to write anybody's name down because my good friend John Brown got it. Well, most of the people he had on that list, they found them, they hung them, or they exiled them. So after that, they would maybe use stones to account. But I don't know. Some say about 70 people. I'm not too sure, though. Maybe okay. more, maybe less. Well, it sounds like you were just... Wouldn't have mattered if it was seventy or seven hundred. You were just following God's order, and if He said to take them, you were taking them. I mean, that sounds like what you were doing. That's right, sir. Some of the people I helped, I didn't even know I helped them. 
you know there was a man in Alabama, and that man in Alabama, he said he was working in the field. He was a hoeing in the field near the briar bush, and out of the briar bush came a real tall man with a real tall hat, and he tips his hat to him and says to him, my name be Abraham Lincoln, and I come to set you free. Well, that man say he dropped it right there in the middle of the field, and he commenced to run. He ran, he ran, and he got deep in the woods. He said, maybe, I thought maybe if I kept running, I might bump into that there Harriet Tubman. Now, you know I wasn't in no Alabama. But he said that maybe he'd bump into me. You see, it wasn't just the me, the physical me that people may have been looking for. It was the idea of freedom that I gave many people hope. You know about that hope, right? Well, I know that you doled it out in to everybody. I know that for sure. I'm a little confused how Abraham Lincoln came into this picture. Did Abraham Lincoln actually... Show up and talk to this guy? No, sir, it wasn't. No, he didn't see no Abraham Lincoln. No more than he see me. <laughs> okay, all right. So it was just a guy in a tall hat. He thought it was Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> yes, sir. Tall drink of a man in that man's mind. You see, he hungered for freedom that much that he was hoping. I see. felt that he was out there with him in the field. Did you find that when you were trying to gather people to take them to freedom, that you had to convince some of them that freedom was worth fighting for? Yes, now and then I did. And that's why, that's why under my apron, I have to carry a persuader. Please tell me about your persuader. <laughs> well, the persuader was a little musket of a gun, was maybe not that long, but in maybe not that little, I should say. But I, I, every now and then, I have to take it up. And when someone said they was tired and they couldn't go no more, I said, move now or die. And I pointed it at them to encourage them. Because, you see, either I could pray for you or I could pray over you. I wasn't about to let none of the other people die from that man or woman losing their nerve. We was all going to make it through. And you're talking this revolver. I think that this, the fact that you were that committed, I think, is amazing. I absolutely love what you just said. I mean, it just seems like everybody would want to be free and that nobody wants to get whipped and beaten and worked to death and have their families split up and all the terrible things that come with slavery. And yet you still had to persuade people every once in a while to fight for their freedom. Did you ever fire the revolver at somebody, though? I don't believe I did, but I did have a bullet in it. I think that just pointing it at, it, at people just kind of got the point across well enough. I read that there are people that call you a master of disguise. Were disguises something that you used as you were transporting people? Yes, I did. Can you tell me a I little bit about that? Surely. Well, I pretended to be an old lady sometimes. When I was involved in that Charles Nail rescue up there, and I believe that was Troy, New York, I dressed like an old lady, had an old bonnet pulled down over my head. and. Well, it was myself and 
many of the women from the church at that time, because that's where everything was discussed and got its beginnings in the church. The church women and their husbands, too, they were there, but mostly the church women. We had all gotten together and decided that when they brought that Charles up them steps after the verdict, we knew what the verdict was going to be already. Oh, I tell you, you wouldn't believe those times were some bad times. See, his brother come up, they say half-brother, but he looked just like him, just like him. Same skin, same hair, same everything, same everything. The brother come up from Virginia to take him back down into slavery. Charles had chains on his arms and chains on his legs. And I run through the crowd. Many people was upset. All the church, well, everybody was milling around him. And I got through the crowd and I, I took my arms and I jumped up because he was a tall man. I stood only five foot tall, and I wrapped my arms around his shoulders, and I pulled him down hard so he couldn't be seen in the crowd no more. Then I take my bonnet, and I put it on his head, <laughs> and I pulled him through the crowd, pulled him through the crowd, down the stairs. And this is, you say this is? Charles Nelly Rescue, yes, sir. Is this your Charles brother, or is this a friend? Who's Charles? Well, he was a man that had been working in Troy for years, and all of a sudden, his brother showed up with a paper for the marshal. Oh, see, I see. It was after, yes, a fugitive slave law. Fugitive slave law. No one was safe anymore. One third of the churches emptied out their members then. Many people left and went to Canada. I believe 40,000 people ended up there, exiled into Canada. 40,000 people? because, And they left because the, of the fugitive slave laws? They had already left before that, but that was distant. The fugitive slave laws had to be terrifying. A couple of days ago, I was speaking with uh, Frederick Douglass, and he was talking about when he escaped after he wrote his book. Uh, I think he went, I can't remember where he went, he went north or... But he was, I mean, they could just come from the South and just grab any slave and say, this slave escaped, and they could just pull him back. They would even take free men sometimes. Is that true? That's right. That's surely right. That law was so harsh. We used to call it the bloodhound law. Wow. What, what's it like walking around and knowing that this fugitive slave law exists and somebody can just grab you and take you anytime they want. I mean, what is that like? Well, it was very unsettling. We were enslaved. Our bodies had been enslaved for years and our minds were becoming enslaved again after moving all the way up. No, we were still not safe. Why do you know up there in Soda's Point, New York, you could almost see Canada from there. It looks so, you could almost see Canada. But you know that a man had come all the way up from the south to carry his mama in a sack. She must what? have been sickly. Carried his mom in a sack? Yes, sir. You wouldn't even know it was a person. But he carried that sack on his back. And he 
Never stayed too far away from that set. Oh. Got all the way up into Soda's Point, the Maxwell community. They embraced him. Them, that was where the free people was. Maxwell community. Maybe third of them people, when the Civil War come, they signed up and mustered in the United States Army. They fighting for the brethren that had been left. They left some of them. See, most of the people that left, they was the men. They left the wives and the mamas and the children and the grandparents. Yes, sir. It seems like considering the alternatives for a black man in your time, it seems like fighting in the United States Army, especially you know during the Civil War to fight the South, it seems like that is the best option that they would have out of anything. Because if the North lost that war, things were going to get messy for the free blacks in the North again. Did you see a lot of black men wanting to go fight? Oh, yes, I did. Yes, I did. Yeah. A lot of them wanted to fight. There was some place, well, you know about General Butler, right? Go ahead. Please tell me about General Butler. I had known General Butler in New England. When I come to Maryland, I was talking to him, and I kind of like his grit because he seemed like he's a good man with the love of God in his heart. Well, he knew another man, which he called Secret Service, Black Dispatch, they call him in Washington City. Man by the name of Abraham Galloway. Man that had been enslaved and escaped. Lived someplace called Wilmington, North Carolina. Escaped from there and ended up in Newburgh, North Carolina. Civil War training camp for black men. Well, Mr. Galloway would go to this inn or boarding house. I believe her name was Mary, I believe, but she had a training ground in her home under the darkness of night. Black men would gather, and Galloway, he would do drills, show them how to fight, show them how to march, show them just train them. Because he said, when Abraham Lincoln gives the okay, if he ever gets the okay, these men are going to be ready already. Wow. See, they had been trained. Yeah, they, he trained them. He trained them real good. So this is, we got the Underground Railroad, and now we've got the Underground Army. He's literally creating an army underground. That's right, sir. That's right. And who knows how many other places we were trained. Black men wanted to fight for their freedom and for the freedom of their family that they had left behind. But one thing Abraham Galloway said, he said, these men will fight, but they want equal pay, and they deserve it. They fight, but you've got to take care of their families and the children. As a matter of fact, you've got to educate their families and the children. And you've got to take care of them financially. Did they get when that? The family... That sounds like a big ask. Yeah, well, the government didn't give them everything, I know, but it's sure motivated. It's sure yeah. motivated men yeah. to come because they were already there, actually. That was a big ask, but why Abraham Galloway, he didn't mind asking it. And if you don't ask, you have no chance of getting it. You don't get it. You don't get it. No, sir. Yeah, so, no, I didn't meet him directly, but I know about him. 
we were all ready to fight. You led one of the, I think in the time it was the only armed assault by a woman, and certainly a black woman, in the history of the United States. You led the Combe River Raid. You were yes. happy to fight with the men, it appears. How in the world did you ever get involved in that, like fighting with men? Fighting with the men? You know, I asked the Lord to make me strong enough to fight. And he did. Yes, he did. He gave me everything I needed. You know, them skirmishes that we had, them battles, them skirmishes. See, freedom is what we all need. Slavery was the next thing to hell. Yeah. I had been organizing during the Underground Railroad, but I didn't know that God had put me in that purpose later on in life to be fighting with no men and doing all that stuff. You see, as a little girl, I must have been about six or seven. My mistress had a baby that was sick, colicky. Child, that baby didn't do nothing but cry all night long. Every time that baby cried, the mistress reached up and took a strap and she put me against my neck and my shoulders. When the baby was crying, she would hit you? Yes, sir. Well, not that she should hit the baby, but why did she hit you? Because I was supposed to tend the baby. That was my job. But that baby was so big and I was so small that oftentimes I had to sit down and rock that baby to sleep. I was so tired myself. I'd be crying for my mom and my papa. But that woman would crack that strap against my neck and I'd wake up and I could ask why, God, why. But later on I understood that was preparing me for the night watch. Oh. The night watches. That's right. Standing guard duty for the proudest time in my life when I worked for the United States Army. I was proud to work with them men. Yes, sir. And when some of them men heard about me in the Underground Railroad, man, they didn't never hear nothing about me. So I had to prove to them I didn't take no more government rations when I worked. For the army? No, sir. I didn't. So if you didn't take government rations, what did you eat? Well, I cooked uh, sweet potato pies, and I sell them pies, and I have enough money. <laughs> there was a little shack back there, and I made 50 sweet potato pies every night. And I made ginger beer, and I make sassafras tea, because that was good for that malaria. Yes, sir. I paid Everything I got, how am I going to take government rations? If I'm trying to show people and teach people how to be self-sufficient, couldn't do it. Gosh, that's amazing. When you say sassafras tea is good for malaria, how how did you know that? Well, my folks, they would tell me, uh, my father. You see, I wasn't fit to do no housework and mind no children, so... I was sent out to the Brodus Plantation to work with my papa. Oh, boy, I love that. I love to be out in the wide open. Yeah, I love that so much. I remember my papa, he would be calling me. I'd be chopping wood. I'd stop. I'd say, I'm coming, papa. And he'd 
bring me out in the field at night and point up and see that that star, that be the north star. That be the brightest star in the sky. Yes, sir, Papa, I say. Next day, Papa may be taking me to the pond and see that there water lily right there. I said, yes, sir, Papa. She said, if ever the fluid water running out of you, too quick, you take that and you boil it down real good, and it be good for what ails you. And later on, I found out with the dysentery or the cholera, uh-huh. all kind of diseases, malaria, that you could catch in the swamps. Sure. Now, this makes a lot of sense. Listen, this makes a lot of sense because I was going to ask you, in the Civil War, it appears that not only were you a soldier leading men with guns, which blows my mind, but it's, there's also a recorded history of you being a nurse, and so is this where your knowledge of of medicine and different herbs came from your parents that allowed you to be a nurse in the Civil War? Yes, it did. I was one of the most sought-after nurses in the whole Civil War. I was most sought-after. Down there in Florida, they called me up. I, you see, originally Governor Andrew, Massachusetts, sent me down there to work with the Christian Commission, you know, the Christian Commission how to take care of the spiritual needs of the soldiers. And then when he found out I could do a lot more with my teaching, and, well, they sent me to Florida. They said, Harry, the men is dying like sheep. Could you mix up some of that medicine that you do? So I went down there and I mixed them something up and well, I gave it to the doctor first because he was sick. Then I take two cans and Fill them cans up and little by little, give it to all the men there in the unit. And they got strong again, mustered back into duty. Then I was sent back up there to help me head. See, you know I had been given money. Did you know that the government gave me money? For what? Oh, to help, to take care of the people. Give me $100 to build wash houses for the gullah woman to wash the uniforms of the soldiers. Because, you see, they had to earn their own key from then on. You know, they had sure. to learn how to do it. But by the time I come back, they done turned that wash house into a barracks. Yes, they did. Government give it to me, and the government take it away. You know, there was plenty of nursing for you to do in the Civil War, it appeared, there had to be no end to the number of people coming in injured that I'm guessing you were taking care of during that time. Ooh, I believe the contraband hospital number eight. I mean, people, they were sickly, and you should have seen. You talking about center work, you ain't seen nothing. You don't see no 10,000 people coming into an army camp at one time. And with all kinds of diseases, I ain't talking about the soldiers even yet. People with all kinds of sicknesses and diseases and illnesses coming up in there. So many people. I want to go back for a minute. When you started talking about your being a six-year-old and the Brodus is whipping you because the baby was crying, which blows my mind. 
Was that the first time that you were beaten or hit as a slave? Is that something that happened frequently? What was your experience as a young enslaved person? I got beaten every morning, sir. Every morning I got beaten for something odd. That's Why? Did it then. Sometimes just out of meanness. Sometimes just out of wickedness. I mean, I was a little girl. I didn't know how to keep no house clean. I had to be taught how to clean the house. And then I, I didn't have no understanding of that type of thing. But I was beaten, just beaten. So they I just be beaten. So they just expect, so I guess I never really thought about this, but here you are, this young kid, and they're saying, okay, we want you to go do something in the house. But because you're five or six or seven years old, you don't know how to do laundry or you don't know how to do this or that. And so instead of the Brodus's teaching you, they would just beat you. There were consequences for not knowing. Is that what you're saying? Yes, sir. Yes, there was. And a child don't know how to do nothing but play. Maybe I wanted to play, and I did miss my mom and my papa. So maybe I wasn't lively, let's say, about doing the chores as they wanted me to be. And, I mean, I reached the point when I just took a lot of clothes and I just put on a big bundle of clothes so that, well, I knew I was going to get a whipping, but I was ready for it then. And when I got them waxed, I would scream. I didn't feel them because they had all the clothes all wrapped around me, but I would be screaming. Oh. <laughs> and Mr. Master, the mistress, they think that they was hurting me real bad, but I was just hollering and screaming, and I just, oh, my goodness. I so had to got, think of something to protect myself. So you've got all these layers of clothes on. You're screaming like it hurts, yeah. but just so they won't know that it doesn't hurt. That's right. Oh, that's right. You know, <laughs> that is just, there, there's a whole lot of brilliance that came out of you throughout your life, and that certainly was some of it. Yeah, that that's fantastic. So so did you work in the house, or did you work in the fields at all? I mean, what did that look like? Well, I worked in the house, minding the children, but then sometimes I was put out to, they call it, to set the muskrat traps, and I must have been five or six, seven, eight, I don't know, but that, 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 was, a, that was another time when I, well, I, I don't think they believed I was really sick. I was ill. I was in, it was December, and I was in the cold water. I didn't have on no shoes, no boots to protect my feet. I was barefoot, and it was cold, and I was setting the traps, and I tell you, my mind went down. Oh, it went out to them poor muskrats and them traps, because I felt trapped, too. Mm. My heart wanted to open up the door and let them out, but my mind said, had it. But at that time, that was meant to. Araminta was my name. That's my basket name. It said, Minta, you better not open up that door to let them out. I love your birth name, Araminta. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love that. Why did you change it? Thank you. Well, uh, after I got married, it was more of a grown-up name to have my mama's name, Harriet. That's my mom. It was a more grown-up name. See, Minta, that was my basket name, or you call it a nickname. But you know, I caught something in that swamp. I caught something real bad, and 
My mama was not there to help me. I coughed, I sneezed, and I got weak in the knees, and the sweat poured off me. They didn't know if there was anything really wrong until I got bumps all over me, crowning my head to the soles of my feet. I couldn't move fast enough, and they called my mom and my father to come get me, but they put me on that weaving bench all night till they came. Had to tote me away. They see I had the measles, you know. Oh, that's what it was? Oh, yeah, I had the measles. See, but you obviously recovered well from it. Yeah, I just covered. I don't know how well. So Lord looking out but for I, you again. Good enough. Oh, yeah, every time. <laughs> but you know, they had to send me out again to work after that. They sent me out again until they said she ain't fit for no housework. We may as well sit out in the field with the papa. You see, I must have been about 11 years old, and I don't know. But, see, my papa was the head foreman on the lumber mill. Uh-huh. My papa would hold all the lumber. We'd go out on the black swamp, Chesapeake Bay, going all the way up into Baltimore, Maryland. That's right. The lumber go up there, and they send it up north to build a big house for the white folk up there. What was your What was your dad like? Your dad sounds like a very interesting man. Well, my papa, he was a loving papa, and he was a loving husband. He loved us so much that he taught us stuff, and we didn't realize that he was teaching us until we needed it years later. And if truth be told, my papa was what you call an abolitionist, too. Really? Yeah. Yes, sir. He was an abolitionist, my papa was. Yes, I believe he had helped that man. I forgot his name, but young man helped him get to Canada. And when he got to Canada, he sent a letter to my papa. And they were suspecting that my papa was part of the Underground Railroad then. But my papa, he couldn't read. At least I don't think he could. But they read the letter, and my papa said that letter don't make no kind of sense. But you know what happened? The man that received the letter, uh, a preacher man, a free man, he had a copy of the Sokolat book. had a copy of that book for the Underground Railroad. Harriet Beecher Stowe, Uncle Tom's cabin. Oh. In his cabin. Yes, sir. So Was it not okay to have a copy of that? Oh, you couldn't have that. Oh, <laughs> no. Put him away for at least 10 years. And his son all the way up there in Canada. And he rotten in the jail. Well, my papa heard that they was looking for him next. He was scheduled to stand trial. And I got wind of that through the grapevine. Well, I tell you, I was so worried. I worried and worried. I got to get down there to see my papa. They're going to put him away. They're going to put him away. I ain't going to see him no more. So I, I was, I, I don't know where I got the money from then because money come in from as far as the, the Queen of England, <laughs> Queen Victoria, and Wales, and Ireland, they come all over. But maybe that time, I'm not too sure if that was the time I was in the Internet Society up there in New York City, Miss Bernard Street. Church Street, someplace up in there, and I say, I claim there's some money for me here. 
Somebody left some money for me here. The man in charge said, Miss Tubman, we don't have any money for you. I said, but the Lord said that there's some money for me up in here. So I waited. I sat and I waited, I waited, I waited. And I fell asleep like I did after I got that injury. I just fallen asleep. And while I was sleeping, God was working. Because folks, they'd come and they'd say, who is that old lady there? He said, well, that's Harriet Tubman. That's Harry, the Underground Railroad. And they dropped some money for me. Yes. I stayed there till about 4 o'clock. And, and, and these people coming in, they're dropping the money. Hey, I put money in there. And then at about 4 o'clock, I woke up. I wake up and I said, I told you God said that you had some money for me. <laughs> and I think it was that money that I went on down to Merlin and I got my mama and my papa out of enslavement on a buckboard wagon. That's right. Did my problem was Did you take them or did you pay for their freedom? Well, let's say I had to do both <laughs> because I take them, you know, on the buckboard wagon. I, I take them up little by little. And we got to go this place and we go that way. We go this way and we go that way. But we finally got clear up into Canada. Now, I don't remember if I took them directly out of New York or not or hand them over to somebody else. But knowing me, I take them all the way up into Kenya. When he turned about 40 years old or so, 40, 45, he was just called emancipated or something or nothing from his master. And he was given 10 acres of land near the Black Swamp, I believe it was. And I believe that. Looking forward, I believe that it was about 18, about 1840, 1804. I'm not going to say when, but when my mom and papa got married, the masters, they give them a coin. And that coin must have fallen down that crack in the floor. You know how some things get lost and you don't know where yeah. they are no more? Well, they must have fallen down the crack in the floor <laughs> because years and years later, when the people is digging in the marshland around where they think my papa's cabin used to be, they found that corn. Was that eighteen oh eight? I don't know for sure, but it had the time they was married in it. And that's the place I stayed at with my papa. Oh, a big free man. You see, he was free and he could have gone anywhere he wanted, but he stayed around. To keep an eye on us and my mama. That's right. I see. My papa was a good man. Yeah, he really sounds like it. You were, at a really young age, you were split up from your parents. Is that right? Were you living in different plantations? Yes, I was living on different plantations. I went to, oh, my goodness. You see, I cried as a little girl. When I was separated from my family and my pop and my mama, they had already been separated. And I cried because I didn't understand that I had to go for meaningful employment at five and six years old. Now, before that time, I would maybe, the children's job would be to pick the big green caterpillars off the tobacco leaves. Backy, backy. Hey, that was our job. <laughs> but then that baby, 
in some other places further down south when you six or seven, you got a cotton bag, you drag me on a cotton sack yourself getting oh. cotton. It's six and seven years old, but they didn't have cotton up there where I was at now in Maryland. They had uh, corn and wheat and such. They didn't have no cotton and tobacco and peanuts and all that. But it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible to think of like a five or six year old, and they're just putting you to work. And I'm—I mean, are these long days? Are you out working for eight, ten hours in the field picking caterpillars up? I don't believe I was out there that long, but I don't know. I, you had to be out as long as they tell you to be out. You didn't have no choice. You couldn't say, I'm tired, I got to go in, or I'm hungry because they send the food out there to the field with you. You had a little lunch can, a little a can holding your lunch and your meals by even early in the morning, 5 a.m. in the morning, you would put out in the field and the mothers were given the time to come and nurse the babies. They're keeping the food out in the field so that they can keep you working. That's right. That's right. Jeez. That's right. It's so interesting because if you were to put the shoe on the other foot there and you were to take these slave masters' children and go work their five- or six-year-old out in the field dragging a cotton sack at seven years old, they would never think that was okay with their seven-year-old. But for some reason, for black children, they saw it as okay. Isn't that just unbelievable? It was unbelievable, sir. It definitely was unbelievable. See, they didn't think that black people had any feelings. They didn't think... We were worth anything. They were, they treated us like cattle or cows, horses and such. They didn't see us as full human beings. And it was, yes, it was unbelievable. Even during the war, I was always, I was always complaining because there was never enough medicine for the black soldiers. We always had what was left over. And there wasn't nothing left over a lot of times. So I would have to take away the pain other ways. And it was just hard. I went to Washington City about, when was that, 1865, maybe that during the end of the war. And I, I was complaining. I was complaining to the people in Washington City that the black man didn't have enough medicine. I was in Fort Monroe complaining to and. By the end, I knew it, the end of the war had come. That's right. I was so glad. Oh, I bet. I just can't uh, even imagine fighting that war. There was so much bloodshed and mm. there not being ample medicine. I mean, that is just, that's hard to imagine as well. But, but, but let me back up from the Civil War for a sec. When you were a young girl, it's my understanding that you got hit in the head by a piece of lead or something heavy. Do you recall that situation? Yes, I do recall that situation, and if I tell you, see, I got on this, I got on this head wrap here, and if I lift up the left corner of it, see that big old hole? That that's where they broke my skull, right there. Oh, see, yeah, yeah, that's where they broke my skull. If it hadn't been for the shawl I had on that day, that lead weight would have gone clear down into my brain. So what happened? Did, 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 well, 
I tell you, we had been sent to the store, Bucktown General Store. When we got there, there was a commotion. It looked like a young man, maybe about 17, 16, 17, had been running. Now, mind you, this is the story I got, and this is the story I know. He'd been running away to see his sweetheart, just wanted to, to spark his sweetheart just a little bit. And he had been easing away on the side of his, you know, of his job, on the side of his work. He just easing away on the side of the field so he could go and see his sweetheart. But the overseer seen him, and he think he running away. He wasn't running away. What, Doc, don't you know that me and my brothers, we ran away? But we didn't go north. We went out into the swamp. We just needed a break. Sometimes you just need some break. It was just so much on us. We just needed a break. So you would go hide? And we stayed a few days, and we'd come on back. We just needed a break. And he just wanted to take a break to see his sweetheart. Oh, but the overseer got all upset and started running after him and huffing and puffing, carrying on. And he, young man, he ran into the store and the overseer he couldn't catch him when he ran out with these weights. You had it right, a lead weight. And I was in the store trying to get the flower with this other gal and the overseer turned and I guess over my shoulder maybe somehow he may have seen the boy run. So he aimed at the boy. But I guess his, I guess his aim wasn't too good. Of course, when he threw that, see, I was standing in the threshold of the door. Now, he had told me to tie the boy up, and I didn't tie him up. He telling all the people to tie him up, and ain't nobody tied him up. And he just was in a fury, and he threw that leg weight. Boom, hit me right in my head. Knocked me to the ground. Boy kept on running. I was unconscious for a while. I understand, like I said, before they put me on that loom bench. Yes, sir. Had to wait a whole day. Folks come and got me. Is that when? Mm-hmm. Is that when you started? After you were hit in the head, is that when you started having the visions? After a life of service and accomplishment, there are still things that Harriet wanted to do. In her 80s, she opened a home for the elderly. But at the end of the next episode, you'll hear what she wants more than anything. You might be able to guess what it is, but even if you do, you'll be smiling and laughing with her as she tells the story. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe now so that you don't miss what is coming next.